Friends, let's open in our Bibles to John chapter 17. John 17. As you guys remember, we're spending this month talking about the mission of CPC, and then in November we're going to return to our study through the book of Hebrews. But today I'm going to read from John 17, and I just want to read two verses, John 17, 20, and 21. And we've transitioned from Jesus speaking to his disciples to now, in chapter 17, praying for his disciples. And this is what he prays for them. John 17, beginning in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Let's pray together. What greater treasure than that, Lord Jesus, for the world to believe that you have been sent and to believe it through our word and our testimony and the love that we have for one another. Father, I pray that you would continue to make us this kind of church, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're talking about the mission, disciple-making disciples, and we kind of use that as a catchy phrase to really talk about three things, which we've talked about during the course of this month. Number one, to be a disciple. What does it mean ourselves to be connected to the vine, to be a disciple? Number two, what does it look like to grow a disciple as we have relationships with fellow believers? What it looks, does it look like to disciple one another and to grow up in faith? And lastly, today we're going to talk about bringing a disciple. Now, bringing a new disciple is just a euphemism to talk about that big, scary word that strikes terror in the heart of both believer and non-believer alike, the word evangelism. I mean, that brings all kinds of weird feelings to all of us. What I'm going to say today is going to interact a lot with Max Stiles' book on evangelism, which is helpfully entitled Evangelism. That's a book that we used to give every single new member of this church. If you joined the church as of up to about a year ago, you would have gotten this little red hardcover book. It's kind of on the bottom of your bookshelf somewhere. You got that as a new member, but then we totally stopped doing that, Um, maybe for this reason. Years ago, I was in college, and I was hanging out with a bunch of guys, and we were sitting up late late one night, and we got on the conversation topic of how our parents introduced the big talk to us, the birds and the bees talk. And we were just kind of joking about how different fathers approach that. And my favorite story was of a father who was so frightened and timid about that talk that one day my friend got home from school and without a word that had been said to him, he walks into his room and there on his bed is sitting this book on the subject. And he picks it up and he looks at it and he's terrified. So he walks back into his dad's room. His dad's not there. He puts it back on his dad's bed and never a word was spoken about the book again in his house. And that was it. Well, I kind of began to think about that interaction. (laughs) And every time I gave that book to a new member of this church, I kind of felt like that passive dad just slipping the book across the table to let you figure out evangelism for yourself. So All that to say, I have a stack of those books in my office if you ever want to come by and get a copy, but I am going to look you in the eye when I give it to you, and so we're going to do it that way. But today I'm going to interact a lot with what he said in that book, and I'm going to basically take his definition and I'm going to tweak it, and then we're going to walk through what that looks like from John 17. So here's the definition of evangelism that we're going to be working with today. It's a sentence. 
prayerfully speaking the gospel as a church with the aim to persuade. Prayerfully speaking the gospel as a church with the aim to persuade. I kind of pitched that to Julie the other day. And I said, what do you think about this? And she said, that's really long and awkward to say. And I understand that, but there's really five points in here that we need to just briefly mention today. And then we're going to spend the rest of our life as a church together unpacking what these things possibly mean. So let's walk through each of the five of these things. Number one, prayerfully. We're going to start with that word, that idea of prayer. I was going to skip this point on prayer and assume it kind of goes without saying in a conversation about evangelism, but then I realized that that basically describes most of our prayer lives, right? Skipping the thing and kind of assuming it goes without saying, and yet here is Jesus in the upper room hours before his arrest praying for God to do what God is already going to do. That's what Jesus is praying here. Look at verse 20. He says, I pray not only for these, I'm not even just praying for the now 11 disciples who are gathered with me, but he says, but also for all of those who will believe in me. Jesus here in the upper room is praying for everybody for all time who will be born again. He goes on in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Now, Jesus has said this again and again throughout the entire gospel of John, especially. He already knows who these people are. He already knows the people that the Father has given to him. And even though he preaches to some of those people, he now prays for those people. Jesus is praying for the elect. Jesus is praying for the people that God is planning to save, and apparently Jesus thinks this is a perfectly appropriate way to spend his final hours on earth, to ask God to do what God has already told him repeatedly that he's going to do. Now, meanwhile, in our time-enslaved microwave culture, we can hardly think of something more frivolous than asking God to do what God is already going to do, to ask him to give us what he already promises he's going to give us. We can't really make sense of that in our culture. And yet, the Lord's Prayer is one big, massive, sovereign inevitability. God invites us in this building block of prayer to ask what God is planning to give. If I wake up in the morning and I forget to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is God's kingdom still going to crash through the ruins of this present one that we now stand in? Of course it is. Prayer becomes this dance with sovereignty. We get to begin to ask for things that are far from sure, like that I'll have courage in evangelism, that I'll be faithful in evangelism, but we also ask for these things that are rock solid for sure, the conversion of those who don't believe, and when we do this, we're invited into this sovereign oneness with the Father and the Son. He's inviting us into this communal relationship with himself to begin to ask as he's now asking for the things that God is planning to provide. We dwell with the Father and Son in these kinds of prayers. Now, 
I realize that's a whole lot of Calvinism early in the morning. And so if you're not ready for that, if you're not ready for, to pray with Jesus in John 17, you can always pray with Charles Spurgeon, who reportedly prayed, Lord, save the elect and elect some more. <laughs> save those you're going to elect and just keep on electing so we can see more people born again. But prayer is an essential ingredient of our evangelism. Okay, we're talking about number two, speaking, prayerfully speaking the gospel. Jesus says here, look at verse 20, for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, through your word, through the things that you're going to say, speaking is an indispensable part of evangelism. There is no evangelism where there is no speaking. Paul says this in Romans 10, 17. So faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, even though that's an essential ingredient to evangelism, I think a lot of us have kind of settled into this maybe showing over speaking approach. We're going to demonstrate the gospel, but we might not go out of our way to articulate the gospel. Uh, I kind of have this plan that I'm going to be the best worker I can be. I'm going to be the best family man I can be. I'm going to be the best neighbor I can be. So that eventually down the road, somebody's going to come to me and say, man, I've noticed that you're the first person in the neighborhood to mow your lawn. Could you tell me the hope that you have within you? I mean, I just want to know what's going on inside of you. Some of us have kind of settled into that approach. Let's just wait and see what people do for me. And to be sure, Jesus says in John 13, 35, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If people are watching and they see love that we have for each other, they'll know that we are disciples of Jesus. But if all they have is images of love without somebody speaking words of truth, how can they possibly know how a person is reconciled to God? Worse than not knowing, worse than never hearing, we might be communicating the wrong gospel to them. If my neighbor sees that I'm a Christian and also sees that I'm a nice person and they want to be a Christian, they might think that they need to also be a nice person too. And that is not the gospel. Niceness does not reconcile anybody to God. In fact, it can be a massive barrier to understand our need for God. I think sometimes nice people are the hardest people to reach with the gospel. We show it, and it's beautiful, and it's compelling, and it's worshipful, and it's enticing, but without speaking the gospel, there is no evangelism. People must hear the words of the gospel. So let's talk about what those words are. Number three, let's talk about the gospel itself. Jesus, he simply calls it in John 17, the word, and Paul from Romans 10 calls it the word of Christ. I just want to say two things about the gospel. Number one, do we know the gospel? Do we know it? Do we know its content? Do we know what it is that we communicate to another person? Have we shared it with a fellow believer so that we know how to share it with somebody who's not a believer? What are the elements of the gospel? Just very briefly, if you're speaking the entire gospel, you need to say something about God and something about man and something about Jesus and something about our response. 
We've got to say a word about God. We've got to say that he is the uncreated creator, that he is worthy of worship from one corner of the cosmos to the other, that he has made everything seen and unseen to bend it back to himself and worship then we have to say something about man. We have to realize that we're created and we're made to worship this same God, but every single one of us have have rebelled against him. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have done what we've wanted to do. We're running in rebellion away from him, and because of that, his judgment, his wrath rests on us. But we have to say a word about Jesus. Because God so loved the world, he sent his son Jesus who has offered to take the weight of that sin on himself and to pay that penalty completely and to put his righteousness on us so that there is a response to be made by all of us who have run from God. This is not a negotiation with God. This is not a New Year's resolution to be better or to do better. The call of the gospel is to repent and believe. It's to confess that we are a sinner, and it's to confess and believe that Jesus alone will save us from our sin. God, man, Jesus, response. The Bible speaks the gospel a hundred different places in a hundred different ways. No two of them are identical in the scriptures, and yet all of them agree on these very elements. This is the entirety of the gospel. That's the first thing I want to say about the gospel itself. And the second thing, which I'm realizing more and more in my life, is that more often than not, we rarely get a chance to share that entire gospel with another person in one sitting. I can probably count on one hand the amount of times I've had a Pentecost experience. I've been talking to somebody, and they've interrupted me, and they've said, I want to hear it. I want to hear the entire gospel. What must I do to be saved? Tell me how I can be reconciled to God. I can probably count on one hand in my life where that's happened. Now, I can't even begin to count the amount of times that I've shoved the entire gospel into a conversation it totally didn't belong, right? I've kind of started by saying, are you a spiritual or religious person? And the person has said, no, are you? And I've said, aha, I've got you. I want to tell you about God. I want to tell you about man and Jesus and our response. And they've said, please never talk to me again. I don't want to hear that. Um, The times that that's happened where someone has really asked for the entire thing, those are really special, miraculous times. I mean, I can think of just a few of them in my life. I can think of one of them that happened within this church just two years ago. I preached a sermon. There was somebody who came and spoke to me afterwards, said, I want to get together for coffee this week. We got together for coffee. The person sits across the table and he says... I'm reading a lot of philosophy right now. I'm kind of all over the map spiritually. I was wondering if we could meet every single week and talk about Bertrand Russell. That's who I'm reading right now. And usually I'd say, man, that's an awesome idea. I'd love to do something like that. But I don't know. It must have been the spirit speaking. But I said, I'm not going to do that at all. Because I don't know if we have tomorrow or next week or you and I are going to stand before Jesus and answer to him tonight. And the kid across the table said, okay, I'm ready. And I said, ready for what? And he said, I'm ready to believe. Tell me the gospel. It was incredible. I remember another opportunity. This was 15 years ago. In the Middle East, I'm riding the subway. I'm reading my Bible. And a guy walks up to me on the subway. He says, what are you reading? I said, it's, it's my Bible. And he says, I know that I'm a sinner. 
And I know that when I die, I'm going to be judged and I'm going to be separated from God forever. And I said, oh my goodness, what's your name? And he said, hi, I'm Jesus. And I said, excuse me? He said, my name is Isa. My name is Jesus. And I said, um, Jesus, can we go smoke a hookah pipe and talk more about what you just said? Because that is incredible. I mean, it was like an Ethiopian eunuch moment. I- I've seen that happen. That can happen. It's miraculous. It's incredible. I believe in a God who can break into any situation, anytime, anywhere, and surprise us in amazing ways. But those dramatic conversations on the subway with Jesus are pretty few and far between. If that's our evangelism strategy, I'm kind of waiting for one of these moments, then our evangelism itself is going to be few and far between, right? In fact, I was going to entitle this sermon, Stop Waiting Around for Jesus, but I didn't know if that would come across the right way. Um, Today I'm realizing that I think in our evangelism, we typically only hit one or two points of the gospel in any given conversation. It's typically we're highlighting these things and we're trusting in a relationship with this person to continue to pointedly share some of these pieces of the gospel. And I think some of the most non-intrusive ways to do that with another person are to ask questions, to share our story of what God's done for us, and to pray with another person. We can ask questions, but let's ask pointed questions. If it's appropriate, let's ask about God and man and Jesus. Who is God? What do you think about him? Are you near to God or far from God? Tell me why. I want to hear more about that. What do you do with pain? What do you do with suffering? What do you do with this dissonance within your heart that you don't live in the way that you want to live? Where do you go with something like that? I want to hear those things from you because I really want to learn those things. There's a place also to share our story when it's pertinent. If someone is describing suffering or anxiety, someone's talking about a wayward child, there's a way for us to say, I just want to share you with you briefly about what God has done in my life through Jesus. Be very open about those things. And lastly, we can always pray with a person. Prayer is an invitation into the world as it really is. When you grab a person and pray with them, you're, you're making massive assumptions. But there's a God who's here, who's present, who actually cares about what you're going to say, that, that pain and sin are real and that they hurt, and that there's power in Jesus' name. When you make a pointed prayer with another person, you're inviting all of those truths into the realm of your relationship, and that is the gospel. Over time, that is speaking the entirety of the gospel to another person. Number four, Let's talk about doing this as a church, prayerfully speaking the gospel as a church with the aim to persuade. Now, Jesus, in our passage, he talks about their word, the plural. He's talking about this collective word. And I think there's such a travesty in the church when we spend all of this time huddled together talking about mutually growing and walking in Christ, and then we break and we walk out and we try to do independent, personal evangelism with another person. If the church is anything, she is a church on mission together to carry the task together, to pray together in our evangelism, to play to each other's strengths together. 
Jesus rarely shared the gospel by himself. Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, those were exceptions, not the rule. When Jesus instructed his disciples to share the gospel, he sent them out two by two. When we turn to the book of Acts, it's a team sport of the church working together. The apostle Paul, he never is doing ministry by himself unless he's being chased by somebody. In all of these places, we see that we are designed to do this together. And yet, even as I thought about this, I began to ask myself the question this week, of all the non-Christian relationships I have that I'm seeking for an opportunity to share the gospel, how many of them am I actually inviting friends from this church to be a part of? And the answer, sadly, is very few. I think even as I say these things, I turn around and do the exact same thing. I go out and I try to have these one-on-one relationships with people that I really try to direct towards the gospel, and I want that to change. I want to see the church participate in that, and that happens when I ask for prayer from other members of this church. That happens when I bring these friends and my church friends together to show this kind of community we have together. This begins to happen when we play to the strengths and the gifts that are within this church. I want to see that happen in my own evangelism as well as in all of our evangelism. So let me conclude with the final one, the aim to persuade. We're doing all of this with the aim to persuade, prayerfully speaking the gospel as a church with the aim to persuade. Now, of course, we couldn't convince a single soul to be converted. We can't do that. Only God can break through and turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. But this is important Because our aim here is not just to share, it's not just to inform, it's not just to make people aware of some of these things. Our aim in doing this is to persuade. And because of that, I think that word persuade is the most controversial one in the entire sentence that I read. I know that speaking, I know that the gospel are controversial because that's the affront of the cross, but the word persuade has fallen on hard times in our day. It can sound very narrow-minded and aggressive and fundamentalist. And so I think by grabbing that word persuade and sticking it in here, it can shake us out of our sleepy postmodern circles of tweeting what's right for me and retweeting what's right for you. And it doubles down on the fact that there is absolute objective truth that stands outside of all of us. Every single human being in this world may now joyfully bend a knee to Jesus in worship today or it will be bent for them in that awful judgment in the day to come. That's truth and it stands outside of every single one of us. If our aim is to persuade If our aim is to use every power, every gift, every faculty that God has given us as a church to implore somebody to be reconciled to God, it is going to reorder some of the priorities that we have. It's going to change some of the conversations that we have. It's going to influence the way we carry ourselves if we keep front and center that our desire, our aim is to persuade people to be reconciled to God. I can think of a very pointed, obvious example for this in our upcoming elections. What happens when the priority to persuade someone for Christ trumps the priority to persuade for a political party? 
If you've been running around arguing that Donald Trump is an evangelical, and when your liberal friends hear that, they're offended by that, and they begin to think, if Trump is a Christian, then I don't want to be one, what on earth are you doing? Where are you spending your influence? If, on the other hand, you're being obnoxious on Facebook about Hillary Clinton, and by doing so, you've taken a person who's been born in the religious right, but they've never been born again, and you're driving them further away from Christ, what on earth are you doing? You've taken the little influence that you have in another person's life and you have spent it on a temporary election and you have lost an opportunity to speak a word to an eternal soul. I'm not saying the political process is not important. I'm not saying we shouldn't carry on these conversations. I'm saying that if reconciliation to God is most important, it will change the way we carry any conversation at all. The Apostle Paul, in a totally different context, he told the church, if I'm going to offend another brother, I'm going to stop eating meat. I will completely be a vegetarian if this is what it's going to take. I can't think of a worse fate for somebody than to be a vegetarian. And Paul is saying, what do you want me to do? I'm trying to make sense of the fact that Jesus has come to serve and not to be served. And if by totally giving up meat, I have an opportunity to build up in Christ rather than to keep that right and to tear down in Christ, that's what I'm going to decide to do every single time. And I can't think of a single right that I have that I deserve to keep rather than throwing down before Christ in worship for the slimmest opportunity to persuade someone to be reconciled to God. And so, we prayerfully speak the gospel as a church with the aim to persuade, and Jesus prays over all of this. He prays for those who will believe because of our word. Let's pray together. Jesus, we ask for the very thing you promised. We ask for those who will believe because of our word. I pray that you would make us faithful. I pray that you would make us courageous. I pray that you would make us humble. And I pray that you would give us this priority in our lives, this aim to implore one another to be reconciled to God. Do that in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.